All right. Would you turn with me to the book of Judges? It's near the beginning of your book, of the Bible. Here is the first sentence of the book of Judges. After Joshua died, the people inquired of the Lord. It's not a bad start. A bad thing happened. They just lost their good and God-honoring leader in Joshua, and so they turned to the right place. They ask God, what should we do next? They seek after his word for them. And now here are the last words of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel at the end, some 400-ish years later, is still without any good God-honoring leadership since Joshua. And rather than all of them, like they did at the beginning, gathering together and inquiring of God about what they should do, now each one of them individually simply does what is right in their own eyes. So how do we get from one place where all the people are unified together and inquiring of the Lord to individually, all of them simply doing what is right in their own eyes? Well, over the next few months up until Easter, Lord willing, we're going to be studying the book of Judges and are going to be paying attention to this story of how the people of Israel started at this good beginning and finished with this terrible ending. So, Lord, we pray that as we open this book, that you would reveal your wisdom and your truth to us. Lord, I pray that it would help us to understand and and see your word and your character and understand it better. I pray, Lord, that it would also help us to better understand and see the world that we live in right now and the culture that we live in right now, and that we would be able to understand and see how you are calling us to be faithful right now, in this time, and in this place. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are probably most familiar with the book of Judges through Sunday school stories. You probably know the story of Gideon or Samson and Deborah. Those are popular stories with kids and in Sunday school school lessons because they are incredibly exciting and interesting stories. And Judges really does have a lot of really interesting stories. Judges has a story about a left-handed assassin, has a story about a man who conquered a city with only 300 people. It has a story about this woman who tricks her enemy by inviting him into her tent and then slaying him with a tent peg in the temple has a story about this sex-crazed superhero named Samson. And it also has this terrible story in chapter 19, which I don't even want to talk about. It's so bad. Now you guys are all looking at 19. (laughs) Wait until you get home, and you can read chapter 19. It's terrible. It's a terrible story. We know these stories from our Sunday school lessons, but the truth is Judges is filled with violence and murder and sex and lies and betrayal. Everything that we try to keep from our children, it's in the book of Judges. Judges tells stories about Israel's early years in the promised land. 
We know from the book of Exodus that they were called to be a holy nation, a unique nation in the midst of all the other nations. That their way of life, the way that they followed the law, the way that they worshiped God was to reflect the goodness and holiness of God in the world. But the book of Judges is the story of Israel's failure to be that people that God called them to be. They fail to drive the Canaanites out of the land as God had commanded them to do, and they fail to be a holy and set-apart people in the promised land. Uh, One commentator, uh, Laura Smith, says this, If Scripture is a long drama with a happy ending, Judges is that moment in the first act when everything seems lost. I think that's a pretty good description of this book. There is a pattern that occurs over and over in the book of Judges. We'll, I think, hear a bit more about it next week. But it's this pattern where uh, the people are are living um, in peace and prosperity. And that peace and prosperity causes them then to be apathetic and to begin to compromise with the people around them. They then rebel and fall into idolatry. And then because of that, they begin to experience famine and war and plagues and slavery. So they're oppressed by the people around them. And then so they cry out to God and they repent. And then God hears and he saves and he sends a deliverer. So this is a pattern that we see repeated throughout this book. Judges is really a pretty terrible book overall. And I'm not really entirely sure why I feel like God has called us to look at it. Um, But I felt as we were talking about this in September and October with staff, we We really felt called to an Old Testament book, and for whatever reason, I just couldn't shake the book of Judges. But the more I've read it and studied in the last couple months, I'm beginning to see a lot of direct parallels between the people of Israel in the book of Judges and the church in America in the 21st century. And there's a lot for us to grab hold of and to learn from here in this book, and there's plenty of warnings for us along the way. And so I just want to, as I often do when I begin a series, is to talk with you about some of the resources that I have found helpful. I know that there are some of you who like to dive in a little deeper than maybe we're able to do on Sunday morning. And so I just wanted to to offer you a few of the the resources that I found helpful so far. Um, First of all, um, I've invited a few people from our church each week to read the scripture text with me and then uh, to help give some input on their thoughts about the scripture. And so that's going to be one huge resource for me um, as, as we go through the book of Judges is, is some of you who are, who are going to help. Um, but outside of Broadway is, is the Bible Project. If you don't know about this website, it is super helpful. Uh, they do a great job of telling the biblical story in a creative and faithful way. And so some of their work on Judges has been helpful. I also mentioned uh, Laura Smith, her comment, a commentary on Judges, and then a man named Dale Davis has a commentary called Such a Great Salvation. Very good. And then also Gary Inrig, who has a commentary called Hearts of Iron, Feet of Clay. And so if you are interested in diving into Judges, these are three great commentaries to start on. And then lastly, um, this... This book, next book that um, has been helpful for me is actually not a book on judges at all. It's a book about philosophy, and it's called A Secular Age by Charles Taylor. 
And Charles Taylor um, has written this book about 15 years ago, and it's really made quite a big splash in the academic world. A lot of people are talking about it. I heard one person say that, uh, that this book is probably the first book written in the 21st century that's going to be read in the 23rd century. Whether that's true or not remains to be seen, but it's just made a big impact. And um, the way that Charles, the question that Charles Taylor asks in this book, and stay with me, this, is, this relates to Judges is he asked the question that how did we move from being a society in the year 1600 where belief in God was simply assumed? If you were born in the year 1600 in the West, in West, Western society, you just believed. It, it, was, it was a part of the water that you drank. It just assumed that you believe. But 400 years later, that we are in a society where belief in God is one option among, among many that we have to decide and we have to choose from. And so Charles Taylor calls this, one of the ways that he describes our secular age is he calls this what he calls the age of authenticity, age of authenticity. And here's how he describes the world that we live in. He says this, in an age of authenticity, Each person must find his or her own way of realizing who they are, rather than conforming to an identity imposed on us from outside, by society, or a previous generation, or religious or political authority. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Living in What Taylor calls an age of authenticity means that you and I are born into a world where it's assumed that we need to invent ourselves to find our own way and to find who we are on our own. And that idea that we're simply born into is actually very, very new. In the history of the world, that was not the way that people thought about their life. In past times, your station in life was not invented or discovered by you. It was assigned to you by your family of birth. The idea of mobility, of moving either geographically or moving socially, that's a very new idea. In the past, if you were born as a a woman in the peasant class, that's where you were going to stay for your whole life. There wasn't a lot of chances to move. And this is what all the Disney princess movies are all about, right? Cinderella, Mulan, Elsa in Frozen, Ariel in The Little Mermaid. All those girls are oppressed by the station that they've been given in life, right? And the entire movie is about them finding their authentic, true self, which usually means detaching from the community and family that they've been born into. In the past, your identity was assigned to you. It was not discovered by you. But that's really not the case any longer. We're born into a world, into the secular age, that for better or for worse, where it's up to each one of us to discover and to invent our authentic selves, to make something of our life. And that really is for better and for worse, because that's a really good thing. It's a good thing. None of us want to go back, right? You want to go back to where your parents told you who to marry? Anybody want to go back to that time? 
We want to go back to the time where we didn't have religious freedom. No, we don't want to go back to that time. So the age of authenticity, this ability to, to make decisions about our life, it's a good thing, except when it's not. Because constructing our own lives is a huge burden to carry. It's a huge burden, and it's becoming heavier and heavier. My kids, your grandkids, are growing up in a day where they're now told that they don't have to just discern and construct their life about what career they want to go to, what college they want to go to, who they want to get married to. But now they're being told that they need to discern and construct their own sex and their own gender, and to discern that on their own. That is too heavy a weight for any of us to carry. It's a huge burden. And living in this age where we have to invent ourselves comes with a lot of loss and disappointments. It comes with a huge burden. And all of us know that we make, all make decisions that aren't good for us and for our communities. So, all that to say, Charles Taylor has been very helpful for me in thinking about the book of Judges. Because I think it's very reflective, that last sentence of the book of Judges, that in those days there was no king in Israel, but everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So if you want to read Charles Taylor, go for it. It's a mere 900 pages of dense philosophical reading. I haven't read it. I haven't read it. It makes a great doorstop, and it keeps the papers on my desk from going anywhere. (laughs) But... I did find a podcast this week called New Time Religion, and it's two pastors who know a lot about him and who are helping to interpret Charles Taylor for the church. So New Time Religion, if you like podcasts, is a, a life hack to understand him. All right, so back to Joshua, or J- Judges. After Joshua died, the people inquired of the Lord. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is the first and the last sentence of the book of Judges. The first and the last stories of the book of Judges are also very stark in their contrast to one another. The very first story in the book of Judges is a story about the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Simeon joining together in obedience to God to go conquer a city. The last story of the book of Judges is a story about Israel in civil war against one another. So how did Israel get there? How did Israel move from being this nation that experienced God's miraculous salvation through the Exodus, experienced God's deliverance through the the desert and into the promised land? How did they become then a people who forgot God, did whatever was right in their own eyes, and ended up fighting a civil war with one another? Well, this morning, I want to talk about three different failures that we see in the people of Israel in the book of Judges. One of them comes in the very middle of the book in Judges chapter 8, and the others we see in Judges chapter 1. And so I want to look at these three failures. And the first comes in Judges 8, if you would turn in your Bibles to Judges 8. And I think that this is the turning point of the entire book of Judges And this is a reflection of Israel's failure to worship. The first failure of the book of Judges is Israel's failure to worship. Judges 8 is the uh, the story of Gideon. 
And Gideon has had some great successes. And there's been a series of judges up to the point of Gideon who are actually pretty good. Uh, the, the stories that the book of Judges tell really talk about faithful judges who were really following the ways of the Lord and the people had these successes. And Gideon had this great success. Um, and so people come to him in Judges chapter 8 and they say to him, Gideon, you rule over us. Gideon, you be our king. We can tell you're a great leader. We can tell that the Lord is with you. So Gideon, please be our king. And let's hear how, how Gideon responds. Judges chapter 8, starting at verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Yes, Gideon, you get it. The Lord is the one who's supposed to rule over Israel. And we think here at this moment that finally one of these judges, finally there's going to be a leader that's going to lead people to worship Yahweh, to worship the God of Israel. But this is what he says next. And he said, but I do have one request. You did so well, Gideon. You should have shut your mouth from there. I do, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. And they answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments and pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which is a, a priest's garment, which he then placed in Oprah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. God will be your king, but, oh wait, bring your offerings to me. I think that this is the turning point of the entire book of Judges, because up to this point, the judges are pretty good, they're pretty successful, and from this point on, after Gideon's story here, things get real bad real quick and they grow worse and worse throughout the whole the whole book Gideon says go and get your treasures and come make an offering and they do they get the most valuable treasures from the plunder and they come and they make an offering to Gideon and he makes this priestly robe and they begin to worship this thing in the story of the exodus God gave Moses instructions about how to rightly worship God Gave them all those instructions about the tabernacle and the sacrifices that they were supposed to make and the offerings that they were supposed to come and make and to offer to God. Those rituals and those sacrifices and those offerings are almost completely absent in the entire book of Judges. We don't even know where the Ark of the Covenant is in this book. The people of Israel failed to worship and the leaders in Israel did not lead the people to worship. And what we see throughout the scriptures and in our own time today is that when people don't worship God, then they worship anything. In a secular age like the one that we live in, an age where unbelief is is an option, it's not that people who don't believe don't worship nothing. They worship anything. 
Like the people in Gideon's day, they worship whatever it is they give their treasure to. Whatever they give their heart to, their time and their treasure and their devotion, that's what they worship. We were made to worship. And the lack of worship creates a vacuum in the human heart that we fill up with other things. We were made to worship. God created us to worship. And when we don't worship God, it's not that we worship nothing. We worship anything at all. God's plan for Israel is that they would be together, gathered in the promised land as a people of worship. And they fail to live out that calling. The second failure in the life of Israel in the book of Judges is a failure to obey. And this is very closely attached to the failure to worship, but it's the failure to obey. In Judges chapter 1, in Judges chapter 1, there is example after example of half-hearted obedience to God. God had told them that they are to go into the Canaanite cities and to, to destroy the Canaanites and to drive them out of the land. And we see over and over again that the people of Israel don't do that. They half-heartedly obey the Lord. They go in, they take over a city, and rather than driving the Canaanites out of the land, they enslave them or they, they, they live beside them. And we see that this happens over and over again in the book of Judges. And it's this half-hearted obedience that eventually leads them to go in this cycle that we talked about earlier of eventually being drawn into the idolatry of the people around them and to beginning to suffer for that. Half-hearted obedience always leads to wholehearted denial. If we half-heartedly obey the Lord, eventually we will deny him altogether. Jesus is clear, you cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and you'll hate the other. In the book of Israel, in the early chapters of the book of Judges, the people of Israel seek to serve God and other things as well. And it doesn't work. Third is the failure to be unified together. At the beginning of the book of Judges, Judah and Simeon worked together to defeat the Canaanites Later in chapter 1, verse 22, the sons of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh, they worked together to conquer the city of Bethel, and it said that the Lord was with them as they worked together. In this first chapter, we see over and over again that when the people work together, when they're unified together, that God is at work with them. But throughout the rest of the book, we see that the people of Israel divide over and over again. They don't trust each other, they point fingers, they blame one another, they become more identified with the concerns of their own individual tribe than with the nation as a whole. The people of Israel fail to worship, they fail to obey, and they fail to seek unity together. The book of Judges is a word of challenge to us, God's people. It's a challenge to us to examine ourselves and to ask whether we are being faithful to Jesus. The problem in the book of Judges is not the Canaanites, it's the Israelites. The problem in the book of Judges is the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel. The problem is not the pagan nations, it's God's nation. In 1 Peter chapter 4, it says that the time has come for judgment to begin. Where? In the house of God. And sometimes Christians are very good at talking about how bad the culture is, about how bad all the Canaanites are out there. 
Or how how bad the next generation is coming up behind us. But we're not as good at recognizing the failures and shortcomings of ourselves. Generally, we're pretty good at placing blame on others. And this has been true from Genesis chapter 3 in the very beginning. In the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, Eve blamed the snake. Adam blamed Eve and God in one sentence, which is pretty impressive. To blame God and the woman all in one sentence. We're good at looking around at others and not very good at looking at ourselves. We don't like the pain and the humility that come from owning our own mistakes, our own errors, our own sins. We don't see those things very well in ourselves. But the book of Judges, if we listen to it rightly, doesn't allow us to point our fingers out there. It's a challenge for us. It's a challenge to self-reflection, to reflect on our own church, on our own group, on our own personal hearts, and ask whether we are staying faithful to Jesus or whether we have allowed the glittery idols of the world to become a snare for us. And what are the consequences of that, if that's true of us, if we've allowed idolatry to be a part of our life? The book of Judges is an occasion for self-reflection and repentance because we are being shaped by a world through media and social media that trains us to point at other people, to see everyone else as the problem, trained to see by our media personalities, by the internet algorithms that come our way, that always reinforce what we want to hear, to make us think that if only everyone else believed like I do, had the opinion that I do, and acted like I do, then the world would be a better place. And it's simply not true. The book of Judges holds up a mirror to us as God's people to our own hearts and challenges us to identify our own unfaithfulness and to seek God through repentance. In the book of Judges, we see that when God's people repent, that God is faithful. There are two ways that we see, at least two ways that we see God's faithfulness in the book of Judges. And first is in God's gracious call to repentance. In Judges, again, we see this cycle over and over again of their unfaithfulness that leads to suffering, that then leads to repentance. And persistently over and over again, the Lord hears their cries and he sends a deliverer and he rescues them. We are reminded in the book of Judges that when God's people forget God, that God doesn't forget his people. He does not turn his back when we wander. He is like the father of the prodigal son who is sitting there at the window, just waiting, just waiting for the son to return and come home. And when he sees him in the distance, he runs to him and wraps his arm around him. That's the God of the book of Judges, just waiting, just waiting for the people to turn and to call out to him in repentance. And immediately he sends a deliverer. In the book of Judges, we also remember that God's faithfulness in our failure means that he is going to rescue us from the outside, from the outside. We want salvation from the inside. God is going to send his deliverer from the outside. The saddest thing about living in a secular age where where God is not acknowledged or recognized, the saddest thing about that is that it makes us believe that we're truly alone in the universe. And despair comes when we see how messed up our world really is. We see how messed up we are. We see how things really need to be fixed 
And when we look back at history and we know that even people's very best and earnest efforts don't solve our problems, actually often cause more of them. And if God isn't real, if rescue isn't coming from the outside, then we don't have anything to hope for. And I kind of wonder if maybe this is why Marvel superhero movies are so popular right now. Because we know how messed up our world is. We know the threats around us. And we also know that our own mortal strength isn't going to do anything about it. In a secular age, it's assumed that no one is going to come and save us. And so it's all up to us. And so it's no wonder that there is so much anxiety in the people around us. So much anxiety around politics, because if that's, if no one's coming from the outside, this is the best hope that we have. But Judges shows us over and over again that the Lord is a God of rescue. He sends deliverers over and over again when God's own people mess things up again and again. He hears their cries and he rescues them. But in the book of Judges, we're reminded that even those human rescuers, even though God fills them with his spirit, most of them are incredibly flawed themselves and eventually fail to follow God and his law. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The last line of the book of Judges is really tragic. But hidden in that phrase is a glimmer of hope. A hint that the best news is still coming. There was no king in Israel. Doesn't mean that there never will be a king in Israel. In Christ, the king has come. He's a king that we need. The glimmer of a hint of hope in these this last sentence of the whole book is that there was no king in Israel, but there will be. And we are not left all alone to figure out how to fix the world. We don't have to untangle this mess all by ourselves. There is a king who is coming, a king from the outside, a rescuer from beyond the sun who's going to come and make all things right. And the great thing about this king is that he begins to make all things right by taking on the suffering and the violence and the failures of our own mistakes upon himself. He is a king who takes on our failures and bears the consequences of those failures on himself. On the cross, he was a king who wore a crown, and it was a crown of thorns and suffering. And on the cross, he fulfills his side of the covenant, his side of the agreement with us. He fulfills that, and he also takes on the consequences of our failure. That's the kind of king that he is. This is the king that we are given to follow. And so our calling as we live in this secular age, this age of authenticity, where we're all expected to do whatever is right in our own eyes, this is our calling to say this, there is a king in Israel. He is the Lord of the nations and of my life, and his name is Jesus. And what is right in my eyes is to serve him and to love him with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength. Would you stand and say this with me? There is a king in Israel.
He is the Lord of nations and of my life. His name is Jesus. And what is right in my eyes is to serve Him and to love Him with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. Amen. Lord, may this be true of each one of us. Lord, may we recognize your rule, your lordship in our life. And as we seek to to navigate and find our own way in this world that expects us to make something of ourselves, Lord, I pray that we would learn day by day to trust in you, to trust you for your leadership, to learn how to inquire of you in our own lives and together as a people. And Lord, I pray that in all of the ways that I and our church are being unfaithful to the callings that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that we, by your spirit, would follow the king you've given to us and that you would make us faithful.